We're supposed to have a video, but I guess that's just for second service, so. (laughs) Good morning, everybody. Would you take your Bibles today and turn to Psalm chapter 105? That's where we're going to be camping out in today. We're going to be in verses 16 through 23. Would you read with me? When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with feathers. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. And then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. In the mid-1800s, there was a man uh, who lived in Chicago uh, who was a devout follower of Jesus. Now, uh, as most of us probably know by now, being a follower of Jesus does not equate to an easy life. As a matter of fact, sometimes it flies in the face of an easy life. And this man, this devout follower of Jesus living in Chicago over the span of about two years would experience plumb the depths of pain and suffering in a way that most of us will never plumb. In 1871, he lost his, uh, one of his, his, his only son, the, uh, the last of five children that he had, uh, to pneumonia. In that same year, he lost almost all of his wealth. As a, as a wealthy businessman, lost almost all of it in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Uh, but that was just the tip of the iceberg. Two years later, he had planned an a extended stay in England with his family, his wife and his four daughters. And so uh, they get to the coast of the Atlantic, uh, and then some business uh, that he needs attending to comes up for this man. And so he had to hang back, but he sent his wife and his four daughters on this ship, and he would go meet them in England at a later time. And, And it was days later that he received a telegram from his wife that said, saved alone, what shall I do? All four of his daughters, ages 18 months, two years old, six years old, nine years old, all died in a shipwreck. And it's stories like these that really begin to tug on the heart, and it begs the question, how can God, being good, cause, or at the very least, allow such a tragic thing to happen. And that's ultimately what we're going to deal with today. How can we reconcile our pain with the plans of God? How can we make sense of our suffering, however big or small it might be? Because nothing hurts worse than the pain that seems to have no purpose. And so today we are going to look at the, the, remember from week one, the diamond of suffering looks different for everybody, whichever way you turn it. We are going to look at how suffering refracts in the life of Joseph. 
Now, um, Joseph's life, let, let's talk about him a little bit, because his story is actually not found in the Psalms. This is just kind of a brief overview of what we just read. His life is found really in Genesis chapters like 37 or 36 uh, through about 45, and he pops up here and there, but that's really the main arc of Joseph's life. Joseph is the son of Jacob, or Israel, and we met him last week. You remember that? Jacob, he's, he's con man, and he gets conned. God teaches him humility throughout the course of his life. And so Jacob had learned his lesson on humility, right? He, he had conned his brother. His brother wanted to kill him, so he had to flee, lived with Uncle Laban for 20 years, got conned, got cheated. And then ultimately, it, it kind of culminates uh, in his wrestling with God, where God touches his hip and, and, and leaves him at a disadvantage for the rest of his life, but also leaves hanging on to this God figure and receives a blessing that he couldn't cheat his way into, a blessing that he couldn't steal from somebody, but by the grace of God, he received it. And so God, over the course of about 20 years, just brought Jacob low in humility, where he was able to finally reconcile with his brother Esau. And so Jacob had learned his lesson on humility, but there was a lesson that he never did learn. It was the lesson of the destruction that favoritism can cause, because Rachel was his favorite wife. Now he goes to uh, Laban's land, sees this beautiful woman named Rachel, and says, that's my girl. But falls like head over heels in love with this woman. I mean, just gorgeous. And he goes to Laban and he says, for her hand in marriage, I will work for you for seven years. That'll be my wages. That's how, what you can pay me. Give me your daughter. Give me her hand in marriage. And Laban agrees. But he's a better con man than Jacob was. And so... Wedding night happens, apparently it was real dark that night, because Jacob wakes up next to Leah, not Rachel, which is, it was his first, firstborn daughter. And so for seven more years, he has to work in order to marry Rachel, the one he truly loved, the one he truly wanted to be with. Favoritism, though, is not healthy in a family, especially if you're in a polygamous marriage, which... Again, that's not the Bible's prescription for us. The Bible's not telling us have multiple wives. It's description. The Bible doesn't hide anything about the sinfulness of the people within its pages. But Rachel was the favorite, and it was obvious. Jacob loved Rachel, and Leah knew it. In fact, three of her children that she bears with Jacob, she names them out of her desire, like her sinking heart, that she just wants to be loved by her husband. She names one of her children the Hebrew word for heard, right, with your ear, because, this is her reasoning, because God has heard that I am hated by my husband. What's your name? Oh, my name's heard. I don't want to tell you the backstory for that, right? I mean, this kid's name was given to him because Leah felt unloved in her own home, because Rachel was the favorite. And this caused all kinds of division and hostility between those two sisters. So Jacob had learned his lesson on humility, but he had never learned his lesson about favoritism, because he then committed the cardinal sin of parenting. Anybody know what that is? You can't have a favorite child. You just can't. It's not allowed. That is the cardinal sin. And favoritism is hard to mask, isn't it? Right? If you have a preference, that's what you go to. That's what you invest in. If you prefer this soda over that soda, 
If you like this person more than that person, you spend more time with that person, you invest in that relationship. Favoritism is impossible to mask. And Jacob did not really make any effort to conceal the love that he had for Rachel. And he didn't conceal the love that he had for Joseph. Now, favoritism, the first thing it breeds in a home is jealousy. Right? Joseph had 11 other brothers. Brothers, right? Boys. What does a boy want more than the validation and the love of his father? So they, they saw the special love that Jacob had for Joseph, and they were jealous for it. And that, from that, it bred contempt. And from that, it bred hatred. And that's what it did in their home. Joseph was loved, deeply loved by Jacob, but he was hated, resented by all of his other brothers because he was their dad's favorite. In fact, in Genesis chapter 37, you kind of see the division and the hostility growing in their home where it says that all of the other brothers of Joseph couldn't even speak to him peaceably, right? So they would always be breaking the rule. Like if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything. They would always be breaking that rule. They could not speak peaceably to Joseph. They couldn't stand this guy. And it wasn't even his fault, right? In, in the Genesis account, you can just feel the tension building at no fault to Joseph. It's just like, tick, tick. It's just a time bomb that's about ready to go off. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever had like a weird dream? Right? I remember a dream I had when I was like six or seven. I remember being in like an inflatable kid's pool in the jungle and a dinosaur ate my legs. <laughs> and what do you do with that? When you wake up, you go to the breakfast table and you say, mom, you won't guess the dream that I had last night, right? This is what we do. When we have a strange dream, we tell the people that are around us. And Joseph did this too, but to his demise because it caused their hatred to grow and deepen and become far more ferocious than it was before and it's because of what his dreams contained in short uh, his dreams contained his brothers and his his mom and and his dad bowing down to him so jacob's favoritism for joseph was the firewood but his dreams lit the match and with the, the hatred of his brothers now bursting at the scene, which, mind you, his dreams were the match, right? But the favoritism is the firewood. It's not even his fault. Like, he didn't choose to be born of Rachel. Rachel was his favorite wife, and Joseph was his favorite son just because he was the son of Rachel. It's not his fault. He was just born into this. He was the favorite because Jacob was sinning in his favoritism, and now all of his brothers hate him. And then he has these dreams, which he shares, I think, rather innocently with his brothers. And their animosity is just growing, growing, growing. The time bomb finally goes off. And through a series of events, they go from desiring murder to just kind of throwing him into a pit to die. To realizing that there is no profit in Joseph just dying. And so they sell him for a profit into slavery, where he would go down into Egypt, where he would be falsely accused of sexual assault, he would be thrown into prison unjustly, and he would be forgotten about in jail to rot for years. 
Now, Joseph's life to me, and to many people on its face, just looks like bad luck. It looks like misfortune, or like life has dealt him just a bad hand, right? He went into the casino rich, and he walked out broke. I mean, he was hated for being his dad's favorite. He was sinned against by his brothers. And then in jail, he's forgotten by the man who was supposed to remember him and set him free. I mean, the reality is like sometimes life just feels unfair. Like, like everything is just misfortune. But here's my question to you this morning. Was Joseph the victim of an unfair, unjust world, right? Not his fault that he's dad's favorite. It's not his fault that his brothers sinned against him. So he, was he the victim of an unfair world or was something greater happening behind the scenes? Or in other words, did life deal Joseph a bad hand or a sovereign one? So Psalm 105, the text that we're in today, it's what's known as a historical psalm. And it retells the early history of Israel, of the people of God, beginning with Abraham, who we'd met a couple weeks ago. And in the verses that we read, God sends a famine on the land. And it's a, a famine that is far beyond Egypt. In fact, all the nations around Egypt are coming to Egypt for food because of what Joseph does when he's in power there. And so in the verses that we read, there's a famine that would threaten the very existence of the people of God, of his covenant family. And so the text says, and I want you to notice it, in verse 16 and 17, it says that God had sent a man ahead of them, ahead of the covenant family. And so when you hear the phrase God sent, like what do you think of? Because I'll tell you what I think. I think of burning bushes. Right? I, I think of God appearing as a, remember the word theophany, showing up to Abraham's tent to tell him what his life would hold for him. Like I, when you hear God sent somebody, you think maybe God spoke to them in a voice or a dream or gave them a vision or set a bush on fire. Like you think of those things, but you don't think of shackles. You don't, you don't think of slavery as a means of being sent you don't, you don't think about suffering as a means of being sent. So like when you read the Genesis account, Joseph's life doesn't look like one of being sent. It looks like one of being stiffed or gouged, right? He's being ripped off by life. Like he's just been given a bad hand. So from our perspective, Joseph is being stiffed. He's, he's getting ripped off. But from heaven's perspective, based on our text... Joseph was being sent for the purpose of saving the covenant family, but he was packaged in pain. That's the way that he was sent. He was packaged in pain. And so, why? Like, why does God use and purpose pain and suffering? Why does God choose to actively purpose and will pain and suffering in our lives as he did Joseph's? On its face, it sounds cruel. It feels unjust. I have two reasons why he uses pain and suffering in our broken world. 
It is because the furnace forms us and pain positions us. Right? What forms us into the people that we are more than our suffering? Nothing. Right? Good times don't form us. Suffering does. Right? It is a furnace. And in fact, in verse 19, if you look, it says that until the, his, his word came to pass, which means his dreams, until Joseph's dreams of his brothers bowing down to him, which eventually they would, until that came to pass, the word of the Lord, of Yahweh, tested him, which does not mean God quizzed him or tried to figure out what he knew. Tested, that is a goldsmith's term. It's a silversmith's term. It means to smelt. It means to refine. It means to purify by means of extreme heat. The furnace formed Joseph. His suffering, his slavery, his false accusation, his imprisonment, being forgotten about, it formed him into the man that God needed him to be. God tested Joseph. He refined him in heat. The furnace of suffering forms the soul. It's what it does. It, it, the New Testament bears this out. Romans chapter 5. It says that we rejoice in our suffering. Why? Because it produces endurance and it produces character, formation. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because trials produce perseverance and perseverance makes us mature. Formation, the furnace, forms us. And in the following verses of 20 through 23, we see what God does in Joseph's life. He elevates him to a position of power where he is able to save the covenant family. So while rotting in prison, if you don't know the story, Joseph is given an opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And he dreams, his, his interpretation is that there's going to be seven years of abundance and then there's going to be seven years of famine and we need to get ready. And because of this, Pharaoh frees him from prison, elevates him to kind of the prime minister of Egypt, the second in command. Nobody was above him except for Pharaoh. And he is able to, in his windom, begin to collect grain to weather the storm of this famine that was coming. He's positioned because of his pain to save his family. Now, okay, so show of hands, how many of you have suffered? Yeah, right, okay, common experience. How many of you, because of your suffering, have been able to help other people? Your pain positioned you to be in a place where you could help other people. It positioned you in the place that God had for you, where you would bring about some type of salvation in somebody's life, where you would bring about some type of rescue in people's lives. This is what he did with Joseph. His pain positioned him. This would not have happened. The covenant family would have died if Joseph had not suffered for 13 years. I mean, the pain that you've experienced, you've been able to help other people because of it. I mean, gosh, I'll tell you, I wouldn't be married right now with a kid and one on the way if I hadn't failed in high school and been 
kind of forced to go to this college that would, like the only one that would accept me because of my grades, right? If I hadn't failed in high school, man, I wouldn't be married. I wouldn't have gone to that college. It was not my first choice. I wouldn't have met my wife. But man, I'll tell you, my high school years, there was a lot of pain. <laughs> there was a lot of struggle and tension, especially between me and my, my dad. I mean, it was bad. We had a horrible relationship because of how I behaved when I was a teenager. But because of that pain and suffering, man, I have the life that I do now. Man, I wouldn't be a Christian if it wasn't for depression and suicide. Wouldn't be a Christian if I hadn't found myself so lost. And when Jesus came and picked me up. I mean, it's our pain that forms us into the people we need to be and positions us in the places that we need to occupy. This is what suffering does. I mean, what looked like Joseph's misfortune was really God's mercy. Like, we think he had bad luck. We, we think that he was just unfortunate in his life. We think life dealt him a bad hand. No, it was the mercy of God on him and his entire family. And this is hard to believe, especially if you're in it, right? You might be sitting here in your suffering and thinking, well, that's a load of garbage. <laughs> I don't see anything profitable that could come from what I am walking through. And I, man, I've been thinking about this in the context of my own family. And I'll tell you, man, this pregnancy that Angelina is going through right now has been rough. It has been without a doubt, one of the hardest seasons of our marriage. I mean, Angelina is, if you know her, steady, headstrong, and independent. And she's good at that. And that's been the dynamic of our marriage. I mean, she hasn't needed me that much because she can do it on her own. And this pregnancy with the physiological stuff that goes on in a woman's body when they're pregnant has caused her to need me way more than she ever has. And it's caused me to be needed more than I ever have been. Like, I, I haven't experienced that. And it has just put so much strain and, and, and trial. I mean, it has been a very hard season. I mean, for me, but mostly for her, it's been a hard season for us. And like, through, like, the tears and the struggle, it has been hard at times to stand on this truth that God is forming us and that he's positioning us to where we need to be. But here's what I actually think what, what God is doing in our, our lives. I think he is sanctifying our marriage and our home. Like I, I think God is forming us into a more Christ-like marriage. He is forming me into a greater Christ type, right? That's what husbands are. They're supposed to be a Christ type where you look at what we do and you should be able to see what Jesus did for his people, the laying down of his life for his bride. And God is bringing me low. And for Angelina, he's making her into a more church type. 
And I think in, in the whole span of things, I really just believe that God is forming us and sanctifying our marriage and our home. And I think he's positioning us for this next child where Angelina will need me more this time than she did when we just had Reagan. Formation and positioning. That's what God does in the furnace of suffering. And that's what today is all about though, right? But it's, it's hard to believe when you're in it. It's hard to see the truth that God is forming you and he's positioning you in the furnace of your suffering. But, but that's what today is all about. It is about learning to trust God through the pain and believe that there is good, even holy purpose in it. There are two things I want to draw your attention to in our text that my prayers would increase your trust in God despite the suffering that you may be experiencing right now. Two things. Providence and covenant faithfulness. And you need both. Okay, these are two things I want you to be able to see in the text and stand on when you're walking through the furnace. Okay, so providence, let's talk about providence. And let me ask you a question. To what extent do you believe that God is in control? To what extent? To, to what extent does God's hand of authority actually reach? Because some people would contend that God kind of like wound up the world, spun it, and then just took a step back. And what, the, the dice will fall where they fall. Right? And everything is, he's just a bystander. Other people would contend that God is in control of the good things that happen because he's a good God. But the bad stuff, he doesn't, he doesn't really have any control over that. It's a broken world. It's fallen. Some people believe that God has no hand in the bad things that happen in our world, the bad things that happen in our lives. God's not responsible for it at all. Others would contend that God is in control of the good stuff, but with the bad stuff, he's in control of it, but he's kind of passive about it. Like he, see, like he can change things, but he also like sees things coming and he's like, oh, I'm just going to allow that to happen. But that's not what the text says. The text says that God summoned a famine. That he sent it like a messenger. That he was reigning and ruling over the famine that would come upon the land. It says that he broke all supply of bread. And we never learn the reason why. That's kind of one of the hard parts about the providence of God, is that we don't understand the fullness of why God does what he does, why he causes what he causes. In fact, the story uh, that I was telling you about at the beginning of this message, after those four girls passed away, the wife said something along the lines of this, God gave me four daughters, and now he has taken them away. And someday I will know why. She didn't know why then, right? But it's, the text says, with, without rhyme or reason, we don't know why God did this, but he summoned a famine on the land, sent a famine. He broke all supply of bread, and he sent Joseph in shackles. Like, God had causality behind the life of Joseph and the arc of his life and what would happen to him, him being thrown into a pit, even the hearts of his brothers hating him. This has the sovereignty and the providence of God written all over it. God was in control the whole time. Now, we talk about providence, and you might like the word sovereignty. I like, John Piper makes this great 
uh, distinction between using the word sovereignty and providence. Because sovereignty just means that you're in control and you can kind of do whatever you want. But this is his definition of providence, and I like it. He says, the providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. And scripture bears this out to be true. Isaiah 14 says, surely as I have planned, so will it be. As I have purposed, so will it stand. Isaiah 46 says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Proverbs 19 says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Job testifies in Job 42, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And Joseph himself, at the end of his story arc in Genesis chapter 50, he says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And I want you to notice his language. He does not say, you meant it for evil, but God repurposed it for good. Right here in that text, we see this intersection of human and divine will in one action. And it is the will of God that bears out. Right? They sold him into slavery. They greedily took money for their brother. And in the same action. God intended good. He intended salvation through that. He meant for it to happen. Dare I say, he purposed it. He willed it to happen. And then Peter in Acts chapter 2, if you want New Testament, Peter stands up, he's giving this sermon, one of the greatest sermons of all time, and in the face of the Jewish people who had cried out, crucify him, he says, you delivered Jesus up to be crucified in evil, sinful action. And then he says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was according to his plan that Jesus would be crucified. There was no accident. It didn't just slip by God. Oh, oh, oh. Right? It, nothing slipped past God, but in fact, the evilness, uh, the evil and the cruelty of the human heart placed upon Jesus at the cross was according to the definite plan of God. To believe in the providence of God is to believe that all things, both what we perceive as good and what we perceive as bad, is purposefully willed by God in achieving his ultimate goal. So, listen to me. He does not abdicate his throne. He does not yield his authority. He does not fold in his purpose. Nothing interrupts his plans, and nothing slips past his purview. He is the author of all history. He controls the rotation of planets and the way that dust moves in the sunlight. He dictates the way that dice fall and coins flip the outbreak of a famine, and yes, even the sinking of ships. He reigns with perfect providence in the division in your house, in the loneliness of your marriage, in the divorce that you didn't ask for, and the pain of loss that you've experienced. He has, dare I say, purposed it. Yes, even the evil and the suffering for ultimate good.
as he has purposed, so will it stand. So you look at Joseph's life and you think misfortune, bad luck. But I, I pray that you'd be able to see it now. That there is no such thing as misfortune or luck or even chance. Because God plays with loaded dice. He always rolls a seven. God always gets what God wills. And his purpose will always come to pass. But God's providence is not the only element of the story. In fact, if it was, it would be a little bit scary. Power that is unchecked by something else. You can just do whatever it is that you want for any purpose that you want. And there's no context in which that power will fit. And so providence is not the only element of Joseph's story. God sent a famine. God sent Joseph. God elevated Joseph. But for what purpose? It was for the sake of his covenant promise, his commitment to his people. Okay, so here's what I would say about God's covenant faithfulness. God's covenant faithfulness or his commitment to you and me is the canvas upon which he paints his providence. It, it is the context in which he wields his sovereignty is within the context of his commitment to you and me meaning that everything he purposes and wills to happen from the stubbing of a toe to the selling of a man in slavery, he does so for the sake of his people. Isn't that what he does with Joseph? He sent him ahead. Why? To rescue his family from certain annihilation by this famine. It is out of the commitment to his people that God wields his authority, that he wields his providence. Psalm 105, if you look through it in its entirety, is a call to praise based on what God has done. Actually, Pastor Colin touched on that in between the first and the second song this morning. That, that God calls us throughout his word to remember. Your memory is a gift of grace from God because he wants you to think back on his former faithfulness. How he has never abandoned you, that how he has never left you or forsaken you, that he has always provided and protected you and ultimately has brought good. It is a call to praise on the basis of God's former faithfulness to his covenant people. Now, it was likely written post-exile. So Israel, as Pastor Aaron likes to say, Israel was naughty. Um, and so God disciplined his people and sent them into exile two different times. And so you come back from an exile where you've been disciplined, where you've been far from the temple, far from God. And like, you have to ask the question, like, is God still for me? Is God still with me? You ever screwed up one day and the next day you wonder, I wonder if the grace of God is still with me. I wonder if he's still for me. All right, maybe you can relate to that question. Now you might look at like the ruins in your own home and your family and your kids and your marriage. And you might ask the question, is God still with me? Is he for me? And the psalmist's message is this. When the odds looked stacked against us, look at how the house won, how the people of God were protected and preserved and elevated. Right? He says, when we were just Abram and his little family, when that was the covenant family and it was just this little group of people, God protected us from kings who had armies when a famine would have destroyed us, God preserved us through Joseph. 
When we were enslaved in Egypt, God rescued us through Moses. And when we were wandering in the wilderness, God fed us bread from heaven and water from a rock. Through everything, God has remained faithful to us. Why? On the basis of his covenant with Abraham, who he promised, I will be your God. I will make you a great nation. Your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. I am committed to you, Abraham. And it's on the basis of his covenant with Abraham that God is faithful to his covenant people. At every turn in their story, God was working all things together for the sake of his people, even when it looked bleak or hopeless. Do you guys remember in Genesis and Exodus? when things kind of looked a little bleak for the people of God? When God led them in a pillar of fire and cloud to the edge of the Red Sea, they didn't know how to swim. And so they, they had a choice. They could die by drowning, or they could die by the hands of an army in front of them. But there was no escape. They were surrounded it looked bleak. It looked hopeless. And God parted the Red Sea for them to walk across on dry ground. There are countless times in the history of God's people where things looked hopeless. But God provided a way out. But this is Israel, right? This is Abraham's people. That's what this is about. I don't know about you, but I don't think I have a drop of Jewish blood in my body. I don't, think, I don't think it's there. I don't think I'm Abrahamic in any way. And this covenant that he's talking about is the covenant that he had with Abraham. Okay, so where does that leave us is the question. Do you understand the gravity of what is in this cup? Every week, Caleb comes up here. And he recites the passage of what Jesus said to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. That he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's the new covenant in my blood. So every week when we take this together, we are being reminded that those who are in Christ, who have partaken of this cup, are partakers of his new covenant, his commitment towards us. Like you are the covenant house of God. You are his people if you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then he is as committed to you as he was to Abraham. Read through the passage. Read all of Psalm 105. Not one time does it talk about their response to God's faithfulness, which if I can fill in the blanks for you, they didn't do good. They were not faithful. But that's not what the passage is about. It's about God's perfect faithfulness to his covenant people. God is as committed to you as he was to Abraham. All because of your position in Christ. The perfect power in his hand 
and the fullness of his love towards us is our confidence. It's our confidence that our pain is just packaging. That there is purpose in it. That God is doing something and he is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And that's our confidence. That even in our losses, the house still wins, right? The kingdom of God still wins. The covenant people of God still win because God works all things together for the good of those who love him in his providence and in his covenant faithfulness to you and me. In Christ, you are a member of the covenant house of God. And here's our big idea, that the house always wins. The house always wins. That God rolls loaded dice. He always rolls a seven. He always accomplishes his plan. And his plan has your best interest, if you are in Christ, in mind. What he purposes, he will do. And what he does, he does for you. God is perfect in power, and he abounds in covenant love and commitment to you and me. In November of 1873, as this devout follower of Jesus crossed the Atlantic Ocean to be reunited with his grieving wife, the, the captain of the ship pulled him aside, and as they were uh, sailing through some waters, the captain said to him, uh, this is the spot of the wreckage. This, this is where the ship went down. And moved in his spirit, he went to his room and he began to write. When peace like a river attendeth my way, and when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. This hymn, born in pain and suffering, grieving the loss of all of his children, has strengthened, encouraged, and comforted more members of the house of God than we would dare to count. And maybe this is the reason why that ship sank, so that a song could be born, that we can sing in the night, that it is well. So let me encourage you this morning. Hold on to these truths, that God is perfect in power and full of loving commitment towards you. So when you see your pain, know that God is just sending you and he is accomplishing his will that is for your good and for the good of his kingdom. Hold on to these truths and you will be able to sing in the darkest night. It is well. It is well with my soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness and the richness of your word that you are in control, that you remain enthroned,
that nothing slips past your gaze, that nothing is outside of your power, and you are abounding in steadfast love for us, that you are in Christ committed to us as your people, and that there is no pain that we experience that is wasted or purposeless. Lord, I pray that you would encourage souls in this room. That our hope is not in our circumstances. Our hope is in you, in your power, and in your covenant faithfulness to us. In your power and your promise. Lord, we ask that you would instill courage into our bones. That whatever we face on the outside of these, these church walls, Lord, that you would help us to remember that you have always been faithful to us and that you will be faithful to us. That there is no end to your covenant with us who are in Christ. Encourage us, Lord. Give us strength. Remind us. Help us to sing in the night. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, encouraging message. Again, just a reminder from God's word that he is in control. I don't understand how God's sovereignty and our free will work, but I'm so glad that God is still, the house wins. And I draw great comfort in the fact that God is in control. And I hope that's encouraged you today. So with that, I want you to take out your connection card. Let's take some next steps because obviously we want to follow after him. We want to use our, our abilities, our life to be able to follow after this God who is doing good things that we can trust. And the first thing we're going to encourage you to do is uh, to memorize and meditate on Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, our anchor verse, that God really is able to do abundantly more than you could ever ask or imagine. Now think about that. And that is true right now and for you. And maybe that's where you need to go into God's word this week and remind yourself of this incredible truth that he's revealed to us. And that means he's at work even now. And maybe in addition to that, you want to read the story of Joseph's life. What a gift that God gave us this amazing story. That's uh, a real guy who went through difficult things. And yet, from distance, we can look and see the arc of God's goodness, even through hardship. And oftentimes, we're so centered in our own lives, we can't see his arc. But it helps us maybe to look at the story of another. And I want you to see that what God did in Joseph is not just a one-off thing, that God is at work. So maybe go through and to read in that story God's goodness, even in the midst of hardship. May your faith be built. Something else to do is to maybe remember God's former faithfulness. You know, our memories are a gift from God. And then we could think back into even our own lives, not just the lives of other saints, but there are times in your own life, the blessings that he's brought into your own life that you could look back to and say, you know, God came through there. Because the same God who didn't fail you in the past is the one who's not going to fail you now nor in the future. As we talk about, maybe it's uh, just counting our blessings or whatever you like, but there are times that we need to think back and remember his faithfulness. Maybe that's what you spend some time this week doing. As you look back and trust him from the past and thank him for that, it helps us to turn to him today and remember that we can trust him. Something else you might want to do is to cling to God's covenant and his providence. Remember, I love that God's faithfulness is not dependent upon ours. That is so good, isn't it? And God is good. He's in control. And maybe right now you're just going through a really hard time and just cling to it, that God is at work. He is working all things together, so work with him. Just trust him. Love him. Don't give up. Maybe that's where you are this week. 
and I may do this every morning, just waking up and say, God, thank you. I don't know what you're doing, but I'm grateful that you do. And that's a powerful thing. Maybe there's something else that God's calling you, the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. Write that down on that other line. We want to support you as a church. I'll be praying for you as a pastor this week, uh, helping you in, in that way. If you got any prayer requests, I invite you, please write those down on your connection card. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to take these connection cards, drop them in the offering basket along with your tithes and gifts. But just make this just, just a declaration from your own spirit to God. Say, God, I'm going to follow after you even more this week because I can trust you. You're good, you're in control, and you're good, and I love you. And I, so that would be a, a great thing to do. All right, so let me pray for you as you make these commitments, and then we'll, we'll take our offering. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are good. It's so nice to know that, yes, you are in control, and, and even though... Uh, sometimes we don't understand it. I'm grateful that you are working all things together, that, that our suffering is curated for your glory and for our good. So, Father, I pray that you would build our faith this week, build our encouragement this week, that we would not see our troubles from human eyes, but from eyes of faith, and that we would uh, walk with you and trust you as you do something amazing in us. I pray you take these commitments that we've had, that we've made this week. Help us to walk closer to you in, in fellowship and in joy as we trust that you're bringing about good work in our life. Father, I pray that you would bless each this week as well with just a, a sign and, and a symbol of, of, of your love for each one as they go this week. Speak to them in, in just a way that only you can, a reminder that you are real and that your love is real. Father, we uh, also pray for our tithes and our gifts, that you would bless those, use them to, to bring joy and to bring hope to, to not just those in this uh, church, but also in this community and beyond, that your kingdom would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.